Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson Stooley, guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance. One of his weekly appearances, the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kylan McDaniel. Kylan McDaniel, uh, as he does each week, Kylan McDaniel endeavors in this edition of the program to analyze all prospects. Of particular note, this week, Trey Turner, Washington Nationals prospect, shortstop prospect Trey Turner. Why, I ask Kylie, why would the Nationals promote Trey Turner to the major leagues and yet refuse to give him regular playing time? Why would they do that? If you were to give them the benefit of the doubt, why would they do that? And furthermore, what do we know, if anything, what do we know objectively, objectively, about how uh, such an arrangement affects a prospect's development. Is there any sort of research, uh, either publicly available or perhaps uh, available only uh, only within a front office? I ask him about that. Uh, we talk about big league scouting. Big league scouts. To what end big league scouts is not a question that I ask precisely or that Kylie answers precisely. But we do wonder about fatigue and to, to what degree perhaps scouts and not any sort of objective measure might be able to measure fatigue that players and in particular prospects are exhibiting. Also, uh, Houston right-hander, right-handed prospect Francis Martez. In Kylie's uh, in-season prospect update, Martez, uh, he he improved from merely a 35-plus future value this past offseason to a 55 uh, future value grade a 55 future value grade how is that even possible is it merely an instance of kyla mcdaniel covering his tracks probably although he probably has some way to of denying it because that's what kyla mcdaniel is like we discussed this and more uh, in what follows uh, also in what follows or what is occurring right now in fact is a message from our sponsor a message that i am delivering the sponsoring question is draft draft is an app it is an app that is available for iOS. It is available for your Android, your Android device. And uh, let me ask you this. Are you familiar with FanDuel? Are you familiar with DraftKings? These are daily fantasy games. Draft is also a daily fantasy game. What's unique about Draft, it's the first daily fantasy game that has been designed for mobile devices specifically. It's very simple. What you do is you either find a friend who is uh, already playing or you find a person from the Internet who is looking to play, you, you you perform a snake draft, you select five players, and then you are on your way. Would you like to select more than five players? You can do that now. This is a feature that has been added since I started doing these ads for draft. They've added this feature. You can add a second round. You can you can perform multiple rounds. Now listen, are you interested in are you very confident in what you're doing? Would you like to would you like to wager money on the selections you've made? You're absolutely able to do that as well. So what is it? It is Draft. It is our sponsor. It is also an app that is available by means of the App Store, by means of uh, Google Play, and maybe another way. Let's not – I don't know the answer to that. So, But you could definitely get it those two ways. Draft is an application. Play it. Congratulations. That's the end of the sponsor's note, the sponsor's message. What I want to say now is that it's also the end of the introduction. What you're about to find is the end of – the real end of this introduction, a musical interlude provided by Kylie McDaniel himself, and then a conversation with that same Kylie McDaniel about prospects and prospecting. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Kylie McDaniel, and it begins right now. What's the Chiron? 
Using war to evaluate minor leaguers. Oh, no. That's called a Chiron, huh? You didn't know that? No, I didn't. Oh, so, no. I, I tried to uh, I've tried to get rid of that image. Not very... I did not try... I don't say I put a lot of effort into it, but I did try. <laughs> Give the old Carson sisterly try. Yeah, that's what they call it, famously. Yeah. Not really. I don't think there will ever be anything named after me. What do you think about that, Kylie? I'd say that's likely. Yeah. Hey, Kylie, would you like to present us with the week in scouting? Uh, sure. Uh, no audio drop to speak of yet, but um, uh, my producer's away on vacation. When uh, when he returns next week, we'll get to it. How, how is your dog on vacation? Oh. Comedy comes to you. You're naturally funny, Kylie. That's true. My timing is impeccable. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> get it. Yeah, we got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so what I imagined this uh, sort of segment would be is, uh, hey, since the last time we recorded, here's, uh, you know, some events and some call-ups and some things. Uh, not a whole lot happened in the sort of scouting sense. There was the, the Met Ball Classic up in New York that the Mets put on. That's sort of the new and very last thing in showcase season, and I didn't go to it, although I'm actually going to end up going to New York about a month after it or a couple weeks after it, so... I almost went. Uh, but it's uh, basically like the Mets will make a few teams based on like regionally some good high school players and then a couple travel teams will go up. And uh, one of the standout players uh, this year was Bo Bichette, who is Dante Sr.'s son and Dante Jr.'s brother. And is probably better than Dante Jr., who's stalled out a little bit at the high A double A level for the Yankees. Um, probably like a you know second, maybe third round pick kind of guy. Um, but is it, is it, sorry, is it Bo, B-O or B-E-A-U? Uh, B-O. <laughs> and it's, it's almost exactly the same swing, similar tools. He's just a little more athletic, a little more, uh, back control, a little more all-fields approach, just a little bit better. Uh, his brother went in the sandwich round, so, uh, same, same general area. Uh, and one other guy that's a little interesting is, uh, Garrett Milchin, uh, from Orlando, who, I've known the name for a while. He's committed to Florida. He's in sort of a major part of Orlando. I haven't seen him this entire summer, and I don't think I saw him last summer either. I think I've only seen him uh, when I actually ran into his team in high school a couple years ago uh, because his dad is a, uh, we'll say, prominent advisor on the amateur side. And uh, some some kids will not go to showcases but will go to tournaments and games and stuff. And from what I've been told, uh, he just plays like the, uh, you know, the games during the spring and, uh, sort of low profile, like travel team games. So he hasn't been seen like at all, but his travel team happened to go to this Metball thing. Uh, so the thing I didn't go to was the th- one thing he's gone to. So I'll have to go track him down this year, but his, he, uh, he plays in Orlando area where there's a bunch of players this year. So I'll probably end up making, uh, Making a trip or two down there to try to check him out, but he's he's the very very rare uh, Florida high school kid with a chance to go in the top couple rounds that has a super low profile. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting because uh, they usually get they usually get spotted early and often. Is that the idea? Yeah, and he got spotted early. He was on the same team. Uh, Austin Bergner, who's may go in the first round this year, uh, before he transferred, was on the same team as him. A uh, kid that was a top five rounder two years ago, and then like three other kids that are all in this year's draft class. Like he was on one of the best teams in Florida, uh, so he was easy to sort of track down and identify. But then, yeah, he hasn't gone to the stuff where you kind of do the evaluating. Um, so, I don't know. I- interesting case. Uh, and then I guess on the minor league end, I did my 
mid-season or in-season prospect ranking. So uh, I guess go to Fangraphs and read it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to go through all those guys, but uh, broke them down into groups based on the top 26 in the minor. Or actually, 20, top 26 with rookie eligibility still. Uh, so I think a couple of them are in the majors. And then I did uh, top sort of pop-up guys, so non-top 200 guys that are now in the top 100 or so. Um, and then I did the draft in July 2 guys that will now be on the top 100 or so. And then I did the graduated guys, which is a quickly expanding and very impressive list of, I think it's over 50 players already, which is way more than usual. Uh, and that's uh, guys that have lost their rookie eligibility who project as 50 or better future values, which would be number four starter, low end closer, everyday player. So it's like guys that demonstrate that sort of upside in their first year is kind of rare. I would guess it's probably 20 or 25 guys most years, and it's somewhere around 50 now. So that tells you why the prospect list this offseason will be a little shallower and why the sort of uh, rookie list will be much longer. And that's available at the site. We, I might ask you about a couple of those names in a little bit. Yep, that um, uh, is cool. You uh, you also attended, I know for a fact you attended a Montgomery, a Montgomery, a Montgomery <laughs> Biscuits game yesterday. Are you doing a dramatic reading of a monologue? I was trying to. I don't know what happened to my mouth. Ever since Mama lived. It, it sounded like a southern version saying Montgomery, so what I did was I embraced it. I, yeah. I yes, I ended it. Kylie. You leaned in. Yeah. So uh, please, uh, t- uh, would you tell me, would you tell everyone why you were there? And uh, I guess uh, if if why you were there was a good reason to be there. Uh, the mayor of Montgomery is blackmailing me, mm-hmm. uh, so I have to go to all the games now. <laughs> uh, no, so uh, minor league season ends, like, I think, like, next week or the week after. Like, we're pretty much in the last couple weeks now. Uh, and so I was making a list of some of the guys that I had missed. Uh, so for, like, the Southern League, which is near me, there's, like, three or four teams within a couple hours of Atlanta. And a handful of them were in high A and got called up. Some of them got traded, you know couple different ways I can kind of miss a guy uh and one of them Taylor Guerrero with the Rays was throwing last night and then there were a couple hitters on the Rays that were hurt when I came through Justin O'Connor Daniel Robertson and they've called up Jake Bowers and I think there was one other guy on their team I was interested in so he threw last night and normally I would just drive in drive it back I think it's two and a half hours uh but then the next day which is today Thursday Edwin Diaz is throwing for the Mariners uh, Jackson would be the team. Uh, and I saw him throw like one kind of wild ending in the features game, but that's all I've seen of him. And so Guerrero and Diaz are two of the sort of top, uh, starting pitching prospects that I hadn't really seen before. So seemed like a reasonable time to go grab two games in a row. Uh, so yeah, I'll go get, uh, go get BP in a few hours and then get Diaz and then head home. And, uh, then I'll have, I don't know, I think about two weeks left of the season to sort of try to pick off a few guys. I'll get the Greenville team, the low A team for Boston, uh, next, or actually this weekend, I think. They're, they're playing at Rome, which is about an hour away from me. And Rome's players have largely been promoted or hurt or whatever, but Greenville is one of the most loaded teams, uh, in a long time. And they actually added their first round pick, Andrew Benintendi, to all the players that have been there the entire season, like Moncada and Devers and Chavis and, all those guys. And I think the only guy they're missing is Michael Kopech because he got a, a substance abuse suspension. But I've already seen him this year. So that'll be another good one to pick up. And then, uh, yeah, you may hear uh, on Twitter of me going to some other games, but that's kind of the idea is I'll, uh, I'll focus on that for the next couple of weeks, kind of pick all those guys up, and then uh, and then sort of uh, hold up in my apartment making calls and making lists and stuff season. We'll start in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, let's talk about some uh, debuts. Debuts. God, the mouth is. Is it, a, is it a French word? Dysfunctional. This yes. Uh, some debuts. Two of them for the Phillies. Uh, both acquired via trade recently. Uh, in one case from the Texas Rangers, in another case from the Los Angeles Dodgers. They are Jared Eikhoff and Darnell Sweeney, respectively. Uh, I guess notable. Not these are not uh, elite level talents. I know Eikhoff did not appear in your top 200 list. You had you texted me some sort of a, um, a belligerent message that I said I was wrong about Darnell Sweeney. I don't understand why though. You mentioned at the end of the pod with Dave Cameron that he was a top 200 guy, which he was not. Oh, he wasn't. So he was eligible for the. He was a he was a 40 plus. So he was a full notch below the top. <sighs> he was eligible this whole time. Okay. Uh, hey, you please... My tip to you was you were wrong about Darnell Sweeney. Come get your whooping. <laughs> Come get your whooping. Yeah, I did. I only I didn't actually check the the, the text message. I just saw that it was you writing in all caps. I I have a program on my uh, phone that your immediately text, all caps Im- immediately deletes those. Um, Darnell You're Sweeney. All caps a lot. <laughs> Wait, what are you saying? One of them I send you in all caps is when will I get to analyze all prospects? <laughs> yeah, you're doing it right now in theory. Yeah, maybe I should be doing it. Why don't, you uh, provi- why don't you provide us brief summaries of these players? That seems like yeah. a thing we could be doing. Darnell Sweeney uh, is a UCF grad, uh, so, you know, bully for him, because I'm also a UCF grad. Um, he came up as a shortstop, kind of the prototypical pretty good glove, above average to plus runner, kind of loose swing, not a lot of power, and then his sort of okay at shortstop turned into, eh, let's move him to second, and then second turned into, it's a little problematic. He's maybe more of a part-time guy at second. And then I think he ended up playing a little bit of third and some center field, and so he's in that sort of, can play almost every position on the field, at least a competent level. Uh, you're hoping you get ten homers out of it. might be a little less than that. It might be more like five to eight. Uh, but it's a lot of, you know, doubles to the gaps, uh, you know, loose left-handed swing, um, you know, kind of 260, maybe 270 when you factor in the speed. It's useful guy. I, I think these sorts of guys, I think I compared him to Frank Catalanato at one point, where it's sort of the second base, center field, left field, contact, not a lot of power kind of thing. That's kind of what you're hoping for. Is The idea is this guy in sort of years two through four in the big leagues, he's a low-end starter, and then all the other years that he's around, he's kind of a good utility guy. I think that's kind of the trajectory of these sorts of guys. Mm-hmm. So, solid player to have, especially when you're in a rebuild and you could use a guy that can play every day, especially on a lower half of the standings team for free, basically. So, useful piece. Um, Jared Eikhoff is plus fastball, uh, average to a little above slider, and then just good enough changeup and command to start. So, it looks like a sort of solid back-end starter, but because it's sort of a power fastball, good breaking ball, if that doesn't work out... He could be a long reliever that goes one time to the lineup. He could end up being a setup guy. Maybe this stuff will play up. Like he's sort of the useful big league ready power arm of some kind. Uh, that you, like I said, you're hoping's a four starter, but you know odds are settles a little below that or is only there for a little bit. And he was, I think, the what fourth best out of the five guys in the Hamels deal. And he was also outside the top 200, but was a 45, which is the tier the tier below that. So I guess you could call him a top 300 prospect before the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's probably somewhere, I don't know, top 250 now or whatever. Something like that. He's good. But, but both the... Uh, and I would say Sweeney is also kind of unexciting, but at least he sort of runs fast, which I feel like will be exciting at first glance. Yeah, and they both seem like they're these are the exact sort of players um, whom the Phillies ought to be rostering at the moment, right? Because you could say, well, uh, possibly something, you know, something uh, they turn into something. 
um, or they don't, and but the stakes were never particularly high. Yeah, it could turn into two fifties. Uh, if you're on, you know, a good stack team, like if they're on the Cardinals, they probably haven't gotten called up yet. But for a team like the Phillies in a rebuild, these are the kind of guys that when they're 45s get to play every day. And so this is the kind of team these guys need to be on, and this is the kind of player that the Phillies can use to, uh, you know, not just have some 33-year-old veteran making $2 million, or or Jeff Rancor, the player I'm thinking about, <laughs> uh, getting playing time where, you know, basically nothing positive is happening. You put one of these guys up there. Maybe they're terrible. You find out. Maybe they're good. You got a guy. So this is just talent, talented enough that it's worth running him out there and seeing what can happen. Okay, another debut this week, uh, called up to the San Diego Padres, playing a lot of, um, certainly playing center field for that team, uh, perhaps another position. Uh, perhaps I've been wrong entirely. No, I have a lot of center field. Travis Jankowski. Travis Jankowski. You should run this stuff by your producer before you say it to me. On uh, on vacation. He, he, he always tells you that the segment is rough. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than this, guys. This is as good as it gets. <laughs> Uh, Travis Jankowski, he was on that Stony Brook team that won the regional in Miami three years ago and then almost beat LSU in the Super Regional. Or did they beat LSU in the Super Regional? I think maybe they did. Anyway, I was at that regional, so I remember it very clearly because they, they beat UCF <laughs> and Miami, and they were the four seed. Uh, he was the star player. He won the batting title on the Cape. Uh, it's swings a little funky, but he makes contacts. Not a lot of power. Uh, plus to plus plus runner, can play center field, probably a little above average in center. Not a great arm. Uh, I think had a little trouble, uh, early in his career. He's one of those sort of 6'2", 180 kind of funky swing. There's a little bit of work that needed to be done mechanically. And, uh, seems like he's made that adjustment. This year he hit, uh, 27% above average in double A and then 64% above average in triple A. So, yeah, seems like the adjustment has been made. Cause before that he was below league average at every stop. Um, and yeah, he's center fielder, and I think it's sort of similar. I gave him a little. I gave, actually, no, I gave him the same grade as Darnell Sweeney, forty plus. Uh, yeah, the idea is you're hoping that that forty five hit turns into a fifty, and that thirty five power turns into a forty, and then all of a sudden you've got a you know three fifteen Woba guy that can play above average center field, and you got an everyday guy. There's also a chance it's you know forty forty five hit and thirty five power, and it's more of an extra guy that. You know, if you're the Phillies, you can afford to stick that guy in center and hope something develops. If you're a, you know, better team, then he's more of an extra piece that you're just kind of moving around and maybe you need to change the scenery so you can get everyday time or maybe gets into AAA if you, you know, decide to go with veterans. He's, you know, that's that sort of dude, but another guy that could be an everyday player. Uh, please uh, use the rhetorical pattern comparing of comparing and contrasting, uh, uh, utilizing both Travis Jankowski and also recent LSU draft pick, second round draft pick, Andrew Stevenson. Yeah, similar guy. Uh, Jankowski's a little quicker, a uh, little bigger. Uh, but they're both above average defenders. They're both a little funky with the swing. Uh, I'd say similar power. I'd say Stevenson might have a little more power. I might have a little more confidence in Stevenson's hit tool. Cause the mechanics are weird, but it's still sort of level, whereas Jankowski can get, can get uphill a little bit. So yeah, Jankowski went 44th overall. I think Stevenson went something like 50 or 60 overall this year. Uh, so yeah, pretty similar guys coming out of school, but I think Stevenson swings a little better and he performed at LSU, uh, which probably gives him a little bit benefit of the doubt, but yeah, yeah very similar. You were, yeah. you were made to pair them. Yes, yeah, yeah, well, cause when you said funky swing in particular, that's what made me think of, of Stevenson. Uh, Did, Stevenson. Which old Medina make you think that? Uh, no, uh, no, in fact, I didn't, I did not make that connection. 
Okay. Fair uh, enough. Andrew Stevenson, we should mention because people will be interested, perhaps now a now member of the Nationals organization. Oh, which uh, which allows us – it provides us with a, a fantastic segue uh, to the final notable uh, promoted player of the last week, uh, is Trey Turner, also of the Washington Nationals and currently of the Major League uh, portion of that organization. Oh, and I, I should note, uh, rolling back your segue – Mm. Jankowski has a uh, good play discipline as well, okay, which could, it could end up being sort of a separator for him that gets him, a, you know, slightly better selection of pitches that could, you know, like I said, turn the 45 hit into a 50. Um, Inval- yeah. Invaluable commentary, Kylie. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, it's Turner, yeah, big Turner fan. Uh, I, at my last job, uh, interviewed Turner and Rodon uh, early in their sophomore seasons when it became clear, like, these are dudes. And uh, as me and uh, Frankie Pellieri, now of D1 Baseball, uh, were both interviewing them, and the, the at that point the hype was Rodon's a generational 1-1 slam dunk guy, and yeah, that Turner guy's okay too, and they're on the same team. How cool is that? And we left the game watching Rodon pitch and Turner play going, Turner's better than this guy. He might go 1-1. And this was one of those games where, if you remember Rodon's draft year, where he was like 89-92, to 92, uh, but still threw his slider at like 87 somehow. It's one of those sort of games, so we kind of saw the bad version of him. Uh, but, yeah, if, if you're comparing Turner in college to the bad version of Rodon, he was better. The problem is Rodon flashed the good version enough times that he ended up going higher, and Turner's swing kind of broke down for two-thirds of his draft year, and at the very end he figured it out. And so scouts that only saw them during the draft year, which is most high-level scouts, you kind of know the name as the sophomore, but you only watch them. And then as a junior, you bear down. And so his summer with Team USA, he was hurt, and so things were kind of funky. The swing uh, got a little too wide. His base was too wide, and so it kind of undercut him. And that was, you know, the first two years of the spring when everyone's making their decisions. So the teams that didn't have a ton of history on him were like, fringe first-rounder, don't like him. Uh, and then the teams that knew him were like, I think we can fix this. All you have to do is put his feet closer together, and I think everything will be fine. And then he ended up going, I think, what, 10th or 11th overall? And uh, even on draft years, some teams like, hey, we're in the 20s. We're not taking this guy. And I was like, I'm telling you, you guys are wrong. <laughs> this, guy's, this guy's good. Uh, you just needed to see him his sophomore year and, you know, pay a little closer attention. And then he basically made the adjustments. And he's hitting. And then I saw him at the Futures game this year, and he showed more power than he's ever shown. He was another one of those guys like Sweeney or Jankowski that it's like 40 raw power that might even play down in games. He hit a lot of home runs in college because he could – advanced hitter could get an inside fastball and yank it down the line. But – uh, you know, was only using a small part of the field to where he really had home run power. Uh, he probably showed 50 raw power at the Futures game. He hit it to that the beginning of that second deck in the in the pole gap uh, at Cincinnati's ballpark, which not a lot of guys did. And he's like 65, 70 runner. Was an 80 runner at one point, but seems like it's now about a 70. And I think he can play short, average. And I think the hit tool, especially when you factor in the, uh, the speed, I think it's 50, 55 hit tool, but it might play up to 280 or so. Uh, with the speed, and the playlist one is, you know, about average or so. So when you're kind of adding all that up, you're like, while it doesn't look anything like Jose Reyes, the numbers kind of add up to can play short, can run, can make contact, has enough power. Like, I don't think it's quite as quick twitch and, like, you know, star level, uh, you know, natural star stuff, uh, but the numbers are in the same kind of ballpark. Like, that's the kind of impact you could see a 4-5 win kind of guy. Okay, uh, I would I would like to suggest that we that we end the the with this portion. This is the early portion of the show, which is tightly packed with information. 
Yeah, it's it's all of the news you can use. Right, and we will get now. We will now move on with to the more contemplative portion <laughs> of the show. Life, man, am I right? Is it uh, a more? We will now engage upon a free flowing conversation. Is that fair? I feel like the segue is kind of ruined when you're like, "This is the end." Wait, yeah, it's the end. We're not going to the new part. <laughs> We're going to the new part. But yeah. what is interesting about this new part is that I. I would actually like to use the person of Trey Turner as uh, my, one of my first questions, um, because Trey Turner has been called up. He was he was uh, called up on the 21st, right? So nearly a week ago at this point, he's had at least uh, five days in the majors. Um, interestingly, and, and in part, I I guess probably because Ian Desmond has had a rough season, and maybe the idea is that they will uh, play Trey Turner a little bit, who. Has hit pretty well in the minor leagues, um, and of course is able to to uh, fill his position at shortstop. He's had only four plate appearances, however, as a major leaguer, uh, and two of them have been in a pinch hit uh, uh, in a pinch hitting capacity. And he hasn't made a start um, since the 21st, and is his only start. Uh, I guess it, it raises the questions right there. Is definitely uh, accepted wisdom suggests that. You will leave a, and I apologize actually. I think uh, I think he actually did not even. Sorry, yes, he didn't even start that game. He came in as a as like a double switch uh, for Desmond in that particular game. So he hasn't even started once. Uh, except wisdom suggests that if you have a top prospect, you let him play as much as you can. What the Nationals appear to have done is to call up one of their top prospects and more or less to leave him on the bench for a week. Well, didn't they, they did this with Wilmer Defoe earlier in the year, didn't they? Yeah, that, right. There was some, and I think it's because maybe their second, their second base spot at that point was a little uncertain because I think was wasn't Rendon injured at some point? Yeah, Defoe had eight games and eight plate appearances, and you can figure out how that happened. <laughs> right, right, um, right. So it's maybe it's not it's not entirely shocking that this is the organization that's done it. I guess my question is what what do what do we know? Uh, what do you know? Uh, and what do you suspect about, uh, you know, promote about uh, allow about calling players like that up and then not giving them and not giving them playing time? Uh, well, yeah, the conventional wisdom is these guys are developing; they need as many reps as possible. Uh, you, especially the guy like Turner, that gets sent to the fall league. You've put some work in to get him used to a year-round, you know, full big league season to get the, you know, the stamina and all that. He's gotten stronger, he's got more power, he's performing. Everything is in place to say he is making adjustments, he's getting better. You want to ride that wave and let him get, you know, as many reps as possible, make all the adjustments he can make. And then typically, with the reason September Cobbs is the thing, is the minor league season is over. Now he cannot get any more reps. You know, instructs in the fall league don't start until later, and he's basically big league ready. Now we'll call him up. And then hopefully we're not in a tight pennant race where we can afford to maybe play a guy a little worse than Desmond maybe twice a week instead of just once a week. Uh, the problem is they called him up before that was the case. Granted, just a few weeks, but before. And they are in a pennant race where they can't afford to, you know, be working a, a rookie in that may be worse or is almost certainly going to be worse than the guy they're going to be starting in, like, you know, a week-long basis. Like, you don't expect rookies to come up and just rake all over the place. They need to have some uh, 
opportunity to make sort of the adjustment to just this is what big league pitching is like. Okay, got it. Uh, and then maybe he would be, I mean, he could be better than Desmond for all we know. But if you're going to use him like this, you're not going to find out. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the idea that a guy will play year-round for multiple years, finally get to where he feels like he's ready, and then get brought up and get in at bat every other night, like, do you think he would get better doing that? Like, if, we, if you wanted to improve at podcasting, uh, would you do better doing, like, a a five-minute conversation every three nights, or would you want to do, like, a full long one every few days and, like, you know, really get the feel of it and, you know, know what happens when there's a lull at minute 25? Like, it just doesn't seem conducive to improving. But, like we said, they did that with Defoe and did it for eight games and eight plate appearances, and I don't know why. I mean, there is an argument uh, for the guy like Defoe to be like, well, now he knows what the big leagues are like. Like, now he's going to be hungrier. You know, taking him out of ten minor league games and giving him some weird at-bats, uh, that negative is outweighed by him sort of, you know, culturally and, uh, you know, mentally sort of being prepared for it. There's a case you made for that. With Turner, I would just say wait a few weeks if you're not going to play him. Like, the difference between Turner having three pinch hit appearances a week and then random guy that would have gotten those appearances is, like, almost zero. So, I, I, yeah, I don't I don't know enough of the plan to see why this is a good idea, but I'm sure there's something I don't know that explains why they did it this way. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask next. If you were to give them the benefit of the doubt, the organization the benefit of the doubt, um, or to, you know, to make, to offer some sort of guess as to what their strategy is, if they do have one, what, what would you guess it is? Well, the important part here is, and I guess it's been well documented, is Desmond's deal is up, and it looks like he's going to leave. Uh, and so presumably Turner will be the starting shortstop next year. And so once they kind of realize, like, hey, he's got nothing else to throw in AAA, let's just bring him up and let him be around stuff. I'm betting that's what it was. And, you know, maybe he doesn't play right away. Maybe we have to get him some, you know, work behind the scenes at second base and center fields. So we have three spots to work him in at. And then, you know, hope we can play against the, you know, uh, uh, AL teams. We can work the DH in. And then, you know, him and Desmond can flip back and forth and you get regular bats. Like, I think it may have been just, uh, he needs to be up here. We'll figure it out later. I'm guessing that's what it was. Okay. What is the, uh, what do we know about how players fatigue? You mentioned, you mentioned that he played, uh, he played in the most recent fall league. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. What do we know about how position players fatigue? There's obviously there are certain sort of rules of thumb about pitchers, you know, not to exceed the previous year's inning total by a certain percentage. Uh, if you cross that threshold, there seems to be a higher exposure to injury. Is there any sort of similar rule of thumb for position players? Uh, not really. There's not a rule of thumb. Uh, like I mentioned, with the like if if he. Like when you're drafting uh, Turner and you know that he plays the, uh, what would it be like February to June 1st college season, if you know, play the postseason and all that, and then plays like the month or so with Team USA, then you know he's used to a season that is, you know, kind of spring training to about the end of the year. And if he looked kind of worn down or got hurt or banged up or whatever, is you know more of a thin build, then you're like, all right, there needs to be sort of a concerted effort to get him used to playing for you know five to six months rather than just four. Uh, so I think that's what the fall league a lot of times is used for for guys just out of college is they might break down at the end of this thing, but we need to get them get their body used to doing it for this long. Um, so yeah, there's there's the idea of like how many months of endurance do you have, but that's about it because just. I mean, like, you'll see, I think the only time you really see guys getting regular days off in the minors is when it's, like, catcher, you know, back-to-back days. They might do some back-to-backs, but they won't do back-to-back-to-back for most guys. So there's obviously, like, a, 
keeping them fresh with catchers. But, yeah, in the minors, if you're like the stud shortstop at a low A team, you're basically going to play as many days as you can possibly play, which is six or seven a week, you know, or six or seven, you know, games in a row or whatever, however you want to define it. So, yeah, there's not – I guess there isn't a hard and fast rule for how to handle minor leaguers, but there is – hitters. But there is, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, adjustment to the pro game, I guess, is is like the biggest element. I remember when Mike Trout was playing in the uh, in the fall league, and he had a he had a miserable fall league, at least offensively, by essentially every measure. Right? It wasn't as though just as like a batted ball numbers were poor, and that gave him a bad slash line. Like he was, you know, he did everything badly. I think he struck out, you know, like thirty percent of his plate appearance or something. You know, hardly any walks. I don't think he had a home run or something. A stolen base. It was a, it was a, it was a poor performance all around. A WRC plus of forty five. Okay, right. So there you are. And he, uh, of course, he turned out to be. Uh, you, you want to use the word generational? He is. He is not not just generationally great. He is all time great already. By, he is generation. He is yeah. He's he's so good. And um, and it's amazing that you know because like the next year he was playing against major leaguers. In this particular league against, you know, a wide variety of, in some cases, top prospects. In some cases, you know, you have, because you have a lot of the guys uh, about, you know, about whom teams are making a decision, whether they should protect them for the Rule 5 draft, etc. It's a real assortment of players, and some of them, you know, from the low minors. It's, you know, it's so it's amazing that he did not play particularly well. But the, uh, certainly the, one of the explanations you heard, or one of the observations uh, I I heard Alongside it was Mike Trout looks exhausted, right? Now I know what I look like when I look exhausted, um, because it's you do a lot of rubbing your eyes underneath your glasses. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. That yeah, yeah, I pinch the bridge of my nose. Um, it usually takes place in some sort of, uh, uh, you know, what like a, a series of. It's a montage. It's a it's a fatigue yeah. montage, not unlike. Uh, like, oh, Kylie. <laughs> I guess it's like a Rocky movie. Yeah. Um, Italian guy. <laughs> Turned a big Italian guy. The, 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 my question is, what is a, from your experience, what does a ball player look like when he is exhausted? Or, or a companion question to that first question is, how often does a scout say that a player looks exhausted when the numbers don't match what he presumes the ability is? Uh, so I will give you a parallel. So um, there is a common refrain in, we'll say, sabermetric communities uh, in front offices that we don't need big league scouts anymore, meaning a scout sitting behind home plate at a big league game, because you know advanced scouting can be done either as good or better uh, than a set of human eyes can do it using you know pitch effects and inside edge and all these various different tools that can kind of measure everything you'd be looking for more objectively than a human could. And then just like, you know, a guy turning in, you know, uh, Mike Trout as an 80 and saying he's got 70s and 80s across the card. Like, do we really need to spend thousands of dollars for someone to tell us that? Like, really? <laughs> um, so that's like a, a common refrain. And even some scouts, I would say a good number of scouts will agree that it's not necessary. But the argument for having big league scouts is uh, like the example uh, one big league scout gave me is, yes, I agree with everything you're saying, but... If, say, for instance, uh, a guy comes off the DL for the first time, his first at-bat of the year is in, like, June, and I've seen him two or three series for the last three years in a row, and we're thinking about trading for him at the time, but he's only going to play a week before the deadline, we're not going to have any useful numbers, I can watch him for two games and tell you what the numbers are going to be. Because I can tell you if he looks sluggish or if he's a step slow. I can, you know, talk to that team's pro scouts and executives because I know them. 
that's another big thing with scouts is they can kind of, you know, gather that information. Uh, but I- anyway, so like the idea of for the use of the metaphor is that big league scouting is useful, especially if you have a guy uh, that is watching all the same players over and over and over. So he can spot things quicker than you would spot them. And so when you're seeing a player and saying, oh, he looks tired, it's because you've seen them before and you know what the good version looks like and you're watching them and you're like, he's either hurt or tired because this isn't the same. Like the run times will be a little worse. The first step will be a little worse. The, um, you know, the, the swing will be, uh, you know, fundamentally the same. If you'd only seen one video, you'd say it's the same, but maybe the bat speed isn't the same or, you know, doesn't connect with that inside pitch the same. Like just, it's just sort of missing a step in like all phases. And if it's missing a step in just one area, like, uh, like just in the swing or just in the speed, you might guess it's an injury or like a nagging hamstring or something like that. But if it's in a bunch of different areas and just the performance doesn't seem there, then you can go to fatigue. And especially if it's, you know, end of a season or just coming off a long DL stunt or something like that, it's probably accurate. Hmm. Okay. And do you, so do you think, uh, do you think Mike Trout was actually exhausted at that point? Did not see him then. That was the year before I was doing this on that sort of scale. Uh, so could not tell you, but seems extremely likely. Okay. Great. What does a guy look like when he's exhausted? Oh, yeah, you mentioned some things. He's straggling a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's basically the tools may get measured the same or close to the same, but sort of the the use of them isn't quite as good as it is in the past. Or like, you know, spring in a step. There's also like a lot of times you can judge makeup or try to judge makeup based on like, uh, you know, how, how quickly he runs out to his position, body language, how he's interacting with his teammates, how he reacts to a strikeout, like things like that. Like you can almost tell what his mood is like. Uh, that mood can sometimes be more how he's feeling physically than how he sort of is socially. When you hear – what percentage of the time you hear the word makeup do you think of cosmetics? And what percentage do you think of uh, baseball, the baseball usage? Uh, since I hear it so much, unless a woman is saying it to me and I know it's about cosmetics, I don't really think it's cosmetics. <laughs> what if you are like preparing for an appearance on some sort of uh, television broadcast or, or uh, motion picture? <laughs> yeah, then I suppose that is a, a second setting where I may default to cosmetics. <laughs> if someone said, yeah, if someone said, uh, oh, we need we need that good makeup, you're not thinking about, at that point, you're not necessarily thinking about yeah, let me let me go slap the butts of the makeup people and tell them, here we go. Let's really apply that foundation. I'm the next wisher of, of film actors, is what I try to say. I believe it. I, your, the comparisons between you and Nick Swisher do not end there. It's true. Yeah. You're silly people. <laughs> Both of you. We've been described as bros. <laughs> the uh, let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, during the. Densely packed, informative portion of this program. It seems passive aggressive the way you're describing it. Yeah, it's a little bit, but it's fun for me. Yeah. Are you having fun? I wouldn't say that. Okay. <laughs> During that portion, uh, Kylie, we uh, uh, you mentioned uh, your post trade deadline. No, your your in season prospect update. Your in season prospect update period uh, the nineteenth period on August nineteenth. Wednesday, August 19th, uh, one of the players who had, uh, I guess what, uh, who has um, emerged, right, was one that uh, who was also addressed 
uh, I think just yesterday in print by James Chipman. Uh, yeah. New prospect writer James Chipman, and that is that is uh, Houston right-hander Francis Martez. Does that sound right, Martez? I believe that is correct. Let's say Francis Martez. Now, I have a question about Francis Martez, and maybe it also applies to Victor Robles or a couple of other players we've seen here, right? Uh, but but I would say most directly to Martez. This during this past off season, you gave Martez, uh, whether you did it publicly or not, I don't know, but at least for your own private use, you gave him a, a grade, a future value grade of about 35 plus. Oh, exactly that. Yeah, he was in the others of note, and then if I sort of, uh, for my own uses, had him as the sort of top group of the 35s and the others group. I denoted it as 35 plus, which I guess I didn't really do publicly, but I did it for my own uses and then realized I needed that to stratify the different levels of players. So yeah, he was a good or to the best of the others of note section. And now he's, uh, much higher than that. Right. He's much higher than that. He's 20 points higher. And this is not, uh, he's a 50. And, oh, can... and, to, and to illustrate what that means, others of note means like 800th best prospect, roughly speaking. It might even be a thousand. A thousandth, something like that. Thirty-five plus. Whereas, whereas, uh, in terms of prospect rings, a guy who's a fifty-five would be what roughly? Uh, something like twenty to sixty. It would appear to be this year. Okay. All right. So that's quite a leap, isn't it? Yeah, he went from rookie ball to double A in in the course of uh, like five months. Right, so if I see if I see a thirty-five or thirty-five plus grade on the player. I'm thinking his. I, this is the this is the possible one sort of con, uh, thinking about it. One sort of approach to it. I say his ceiling is limited, and regardless of what happens in terms of development, his you know his probably like the best the best case scenario for him is he's uh, you know he's an or guy. You know maybe he comes up and he's able to help in like a sixth inning relief capacity, which I don't even know if that's a role. So that's, that's yeah, you were wrong. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm 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 explaining a little bit. This is we're trying to get to the oh, okay. trying to get to the meat of this Continue thing. Continue being wrong. <laughs> and then <laughs> I'm wrong. Uh, and then at 55, I, this is an above average uh, starter, at least above average, slightly above average, firm, solidly above average starter. Yes. Now I will tell you what those numbers actually mean. Okay. Um, so especially hey, the hey low- hey Kylie. Yeah. Don't, don't be a dick about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what they mean to me. Uh, in the 35, 35 plus 40 area, so like the bottom of the list and then the others, typically it means either you have performance or you have tools and you don't have the other. And you may not have performance because if you're a tools guy because you just haven't played it, like you're just recently drafted. Or you could be a guy in AAA with three fringe pitches and good command and a bunch of deception. Like, those are the sort of the two different kinds of guys that can land down there. And, and there's obviously some examples in between, but it's typically one or the other. And a 35 guy is typically AAA, no tools, I guess he'll make the big leagues, maybe he'll be something, I'm not counting on it. Or it's like rookie ball, you know, swings at, out of control, but can hit the ball a mile. But then 35 plus means, oh, he's the better out of that group of guys that only have one or the other. So it's usually either going to be a big league reliever next year and could turn into a starter, or it's rookie ball guy with a ton of tools and a little more performance than the 35 guys. So like 35 plus is typically like three to five players per system. And so when you see that number, you can be like, not quite enough to put him on the list, but there's definitely something here uh, of use. And then 55, especially for a pitcher, because you kind of hedge a little bit on pitchers given the 
uh, that they get hurt so often, and it's kind of impossible to guess which ones. Uh, 55 means third, fourth starter, and so to have the future value be a 55, it means that's what I'm expecting, as in it could be, you should expect it to be better than that if you're not gonna get hurt, but because of the, you know, not being at a big league level yet, there's some risk, because of injury, there's some risk. That means like that's sort of like a median projection. So especially when it's a guy that's still 19 and he's a 55 and he's in double A, it's like, oh, this guy could easily be a 60 or 65. Yes. Tell me a little bit about Marquez. Which would be a, a three or a two three, something like that. So what for, what for you and what for uh, Dr. James Chipman? <laughs> I didn't know he was a doctor. I didn't know he was either. <laughs> but it just... I think if he was a doctor. Yeah. The uh, what what is, what has Martez do uh, has done? What what has he do? What has he do? <laughs> doctor uh, of English, Carson Sisterly. <laughs> since the spring, since the spring, uh, that would allow him. Uh, that would allow him to have so much success and to into into um, suggest such promise. Well, he turned from an arm strength dude into a dude dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the short version. So he he was a throw in in the Jared Cozart Colin Moran trade. Mm-hmm. So he he was another one of those uh, hard throwing look like reliever type guys the Marlins have signed, uh, which typically are never sixteen or high bonus guys. They just keep finding Dominican guys to throw hard. Uh, he was a throw in in that trade when he was in rookie ball. And then he was in extended, yeah, he was in extended spring to start the year and was throwing well and then got sent to low A and then completely carved up low A. And I was starting to hear like, hey, this guy's a lot better. He's not coming in the year. It was like fringe slider, a little above average change, uh, runs it into the mid nineties, pretty fluid, but maxed out body. I don't know, quick arm could be something. Uh, but if he was like 6'5", 180, then he would have been on the list. But since he was sort of maxed out physically and uh, larger lower half, as they say, it's like, all right, well, we're not going to count on it getting better, but we know that it could, which, you know, kind of gives you the 35-plus indication. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slider went from fringy to a 65, flashing 70. That's basically what happened. <laughs> so he started throwing a couple ticks harder. Uh, I don't know what he did with the slider, but it improved way more than just the arm speed increasing. So he maybe changed the grip or something. And then the changeup plays up a little bit better just because of the contrast and the arm speed and all that kind of thing. And he actually has pretty good command for a teenage guy with huge stuff. Um, and actually the question I was asking, since Martez was throwing in, California, in the Cal League for a while, I actually missed him two different starts by one day when I was in California. Um, Dylan Tate, uh, the number four overall pick in the draft this year, is similar in stuff and similar in command and similar in stature and right-handed. And so all the area scouts that saw Dylan Tate or cross-checkers or whatever on the West Coast, a lot of them saw Martez. And I was asking people to uh, compare them, and they're saying, well, stuff's basically the same. Uh, Tate's a little more sort of uh, athletic and loose and, you know, sort of quick twitch, and Martez is more of a, you know, bigger, more sturdy guy. Mm-hmm. But Tate had been a reliever until, uh, like, March of this year, and so he's still working on the command and kind of toning down the delivery and kind of doing starter stuff, and Martez has, like, a lower effort delivery, puts it where he wants to, like, just strolled through a ball no problem this year, having never been to either of those levels before. Uh, so, obviously, the command is more advanced, and because of that, the stuff plays a little better. So, they're like, yeah, he's better than Tate. Put him ahead of Tate, and if he was in the draft this year, he's, like, what, two years younger than Tate? Uh yeah, two years younger than Tate, he's like, yeah, he would have gone ahead of him. So he would have gone top five in the draft this year from being sort of an afterthought entering the year. Uh, footnote two, the, uh, Dylan Tate was selected by the Texas Rangers. 
Yes, and it's in the same uh, in-season prospect list as the ninth-best amateur player that is newly entering pro baseball. Is that right? Yeah, although it's like a pretty close tie. You could argue he's you know fifth or sixth best if you really want to, but I had him ninth. That's uh, your your draft slash July two signees um, sort of uh, board. Your that board right there. You have one through sixteen. How like if you were to isolate just the the uh, the players who were selected out of high school college, how closely would that mirror the order in which they were actually selected in the draft? Uh, pretty close. Pretty actually, close. if you go to the sort of where I think it has where they were drafted and where I had them ranked. Yeah, yeah it does. Okay, hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that right now though. Fine. Yeah, the biggest gap was Trenton Clark. I had seventh, then he went fifteenth. But he was seen as a guy that slid. It was I actually talked to some of the teams that picked in the ten to fourteen area, and they were like, "Yeah, it was like him and a couple other guys. And we picked the other guy." So I think he was seen in the industry as like a eight to twelve fit, and I had him seventh, a little bit higher, and then he just happened to slide to fifteenth. But yeah, pretty much everybody else, like Daz Cameron, slid. But I, you know, I guess I predicted that one. Uh, but yeah, the the draft was seen as the people saw a cutoff after the guy I had ranked thirteenth. And if you, uh, you know, if you slide Clark up a couple picks and take out Cameron who slid, everybody went within a couple spots of where I had him. So, okay. all right, yeah, that's that top tier went uh, to form. Okay, yeah. I just, hey, I was just curious. That's my uh, no, but then after that, it, it went all over the place, which I think further underlined that that's where sort of the industry saw the break in talent. Let me uh, let me ask you one thing, and then uh, and then you will have fulfilled your your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I don't feel like I've fulfilled my obligation until I antagonize you. Okay. Well, maybe this is your opportunity, perhaps. I am curious uh, about this. I, I'm cu- when do when do teams are there are there uh, points during the year uh, at which teams are promoting uh, players prospects from from one minor league level to to the next? Because I know that like there seem to be times because you know I'm I'm sort of pouring through a lot of the uh, the data. And I say, oh, he was just he was just promoted. He was just promoted. Like I know, um, in the past week, for example, both Jarrell Cotton and let's see, Jarrell Cotton, who's a Dodgers prospect, he was promoted to AAA. And also Chase Johnson was promoted, I guess, from High A to Double A. He's a, a right-handed uh, prospect in the San Francisco system. So they were both promoted this week. And uh, so there seems to have been you know a little bit of player movement over over the past week or two. And I know it seems typically the one I do recognize is right around the draft because you have a number of players incoming to systems. There seems to be uh, other other sort of uh, player movement within those systems to to accommodate the uh, the influx of of talent. Um, but I'm curious if there are certain just moments where it's it's more common to see players moving between levels. Yeah, and also around the draft is when the short season teams start. So a lot of times right. a team, you know, maybe they'll have like a high profile guy that they think is really talented that they'll send a low A and he's really struggling, but they don't want to call him back to extended. They'll wait until that short season team starts and they'll call him back to that team. Um, yeah, the draft is very common. The all star break, which is usually depending, it's different league to league, but it, it's right around the draft. It is a little bit after normally. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a typical one. Uh, and then, yeah, other than that, I mean, there's obviously, like, if you're getting called to the big leagues, there's, like, the Super 2 and, like, the, what, 14 days or whatever you have to wait to delay your service another year. There's those. There's, yeah, the All-Star break in the draft. But other than that, there's not, like, huge, like, signposts. Like, most of it's, you know, more like, uh, oh, there's also one other one is that we'll do the postseason uh, stuff. So, like, say your low-A team isn't going to make the playoffs, but the double-A team is, and your top prospects is center fielder in low-A, and your double-A center fielder is not that good, call that guy up for the double-A playoffs. 
get him some at-bats, let him face some better hitting, and hey, if he hits a couple home runs, I mean, that's, you know, really good momentum for next year, him having some confidence at that level, and if he doesn't, it's like, ah, it's just a week, you never face these guys before, no problem. Um, so yeah, those are the ones where it normally happens. Yeah, the rest of it's just more like, he earned it, uh, there's a cascade effect where we called up a few guys or a couple guys went on the DL to where there's spots, you know, at higher levels, so everybody gets moved up at once. I think that's usually a bigger factor than any sort of, uh, signpost is. Mm-hmm. And then there's also just, you know, sort of like Martez, it's like, oh, he just sailed through low A, he's not being, you know, challenged now, and oh, we happen to have a spot in high A, alright, this seems like a good enough time. And then the other one with Martez is he could be a K-Rod-like reliever in the playoffs for them. And so you could leave him in high the rest of the year. I mean, he's only 19. He's two years young uh, for the league as far as you know, prospect age goes, and there's plenty of guys that are more than two years older than him in that league. Uh, but if you want to call him up, you know, late in the season to possibly be a, you know, down-the-stretch playoff guy like, say, a Brandon Finnegan type thing or K-Rod or whoever, uh, you'd like for him at least be in double-A where he's facing sort of big league caliber hitters or style hitters. Uh, so that's another one where you're like, all right, would be fine here, but we need to challenge him a little more and see what's in there to bring him up down the stretch. But, yeah, it's it's usually more of just a he's earned it. Sometime in the next week we'll bring him up. Let's wait until there's, you know, maybe there will be an easy way to move him into a slot that's open. If not, then we'll have to make a spot. I think it's more of sort of a convenience roster decision than necessarily like uh, something on the calendar coming up. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Also, you mentioned uh, um, sort of possibly elite relievers. I mean, first of all, Houston has one of the top five bullpens uh, by a couple different measures already this season. So and and they're also uh, trying to limit the innings of Velasquez and McCullers and these guys who all would play up in short stints. So, yeah, they've got a, they got a lot of arms to deal with. Yeah, and they also have uh, – he's pitched one inning in the majors this year, uh, but he's also pitched quite well at both high and double A, and that's Michael Feliz. I don't know if that name sounds familiar to you. He also throws hard and would probably be better in a relief setting now than a starter one, although he – I don't think the command is quite to the level where you can – uh, you know, sort of trust him to come in the eighth inning of an important game and, you know, throw strikes consistently. Mm-hmm. Although there are some guys currently in the big leagues you would say that about too. So. <laughs> yeah, that seems like, yeah, like a, that might be a thing that, that's a term that applies to a lot of relievers. You remember Scott Williamson? Remember him? Yeah, little dude with the Reds. Yeah, he pitched with the Reds a bunch. I think they actually tried to start him one year. And he also yeah. pitched for, uh, and then he was injured a bunch, but he pitched for, the Red Sox at one point, I remember. He he would he had a lot of strikeouts, is what he did. Did he try and start? Uh, yeah, that's also, a, also true of a lot of relievers. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like maybe relative to the time. I, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but this guy, Roldis Chapman, uh, can rack up the case. Yeah, I get it. I get where you're going. I get. I see what's happening here. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. No more. Uh, Literally no more. You, it's been uh, it's been almost an hour. You're, you're doing true. a good job. Oh, so have, have I been the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com? Well, you've definitely fulfilled your obligation to the to the program. And yeah, I, I just want to say thank you, Kylie. Wow, Carson, this, you're really being the bigger guy here. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for participating. Yeah, uh, well, you're uh, welcome, as they say. <laughs> they, they do say that, I guess. I've, uh, that I've heard it, humans use that phraseology before, so I'm, I'm going to use that here. Uh, that has been Kylie McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.